Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, if only you could hear what happens in the seconds prior to pressing record. Being berated again by the one and only Nathan Goble. Your hair looks kind of nice with the uh, microphone on there. It's like you got the... Uh... I wore it like a barrette. <laughs> Father John, Father Nathan, this welcome is, back. This is Catholic Stuff. We are doing our 2020 pledge drive. Um, currently, we are up to 13 bottles of bourbon that have been uh, pledged to us. We are very grateful for our listener land, for the ways in which they support us both seen and unseen. Mike Zizdi's calls you guys the uh, Shakedown Boys. So every uh, Ash Wednesday, we do a purge, and uh, that's where you, you, you pray through everything you own, and you... You, we say you start with nothing and add only what you need, right? Right. And so, and then you invite the brothers in, and it's it's a beautiful thing. We go, we we'll go to every guy's place, and we'll walk through um, everything they own. And the idea is to be purging, to be light, um, and to continue to try and live poverty and simplicity of life. And this is something that everybody can do. I don't think you just have to. Yeah. Be priest, even, <laughs> aka mom, even uh, religious that back room in the basement. Yeah, of those dishes that you've been promising me for four years. That's right. Um, uh, even religious, because I was with the CFRs at that IPF thing. Uh-huh. Uh, Capuchin Friars of the Renewal and or Franciscan Friars. Community of the Renewal. Friars. Okay. Community of the Friars of the Franciscans of the Capuchins Renewals of the Third Franciscans. Right. Anywho, um, they said they heard about the purge and they're like, "We need to do that." I'm like, "You guys are religious." Yeah, they don't. He goes, that. "He goes, you'd be surprised how much stuff enters into guys' rooms." Yeah, that's true. So it's a great thing. I, I actually look forward to it, but there's always the pinch every year. Mm. There's the pinch. You think you you kind of re you, you reassemble things, kind of hide things in drawers, kind of you know. No, I'm His sure. car and uh, but it was this year. It was too much bourbon. And too many biking jerseys. You had an excess. You had an excess of bourbon out. Right. If it wasn't in your personal space, I wouldn't have had a problem with it. Well, where else am I going to put it? You could put it out in the liquor cabinet. In the how long do you think that'll last? Did you hear about the cheese? It coincidence? Okay. Just yeah. Saying. And yeah. then uh, he had he had five biking jerseys. Right. So, and I just said, I just happened to notice Father John. He had a very sneaky look as he was walking through my. It was he. Di, he he broke off from the pack because he, he was, was he was he was trying to snooping. He was trying to he was trying to lead everybody through Jurassic Park and just be like be like there's nothing to see here. There's just some books and some camping gear. Please keep up. Please keep up. And then I just kind of broke off from the pack and I was like, yeah. oh, did he go through this closet? There was a lot of snooping going on. And uh, I but, opened I opened one door. Yeah, he opened one door, and then I was like, that bastard. And then I actually prayed about it this morning, and I was like, yeah, that's true. So we're down to Maker's Mark, and uh, the rest is going into the communal setting. And I think you just say to them, this is for special occasions. This is for special occasions. I think that it was uh, it was great, and I cannot wait to oh. snoop around oh, I know. Schloss Goebbels in two weeks, because guess what? That is like going to Disney World, right? Yeah, but the problem is... The problem is uh, you've gone down to almost nothing. I have everything. And so that's like punching Jabba the Hutt. And he's just like, I don't even feel that. Right? You're like, why don't you get rid of those three bags of beaver nuggets? And I was like, okay. You don't even know about the five bags I have hidden. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You fool. No, it's great. Uh, The Purge is a great thing. And uh, this is going to come out 
uh, next week, so that'll be the first day of Lent. Mm-hmm. And so if you find yourself, which this happens to all of us, you're getting into Lent and you still don't know what to do. Well, a great thing to do is just to purge. I think, but bring bring community into it, bring relationship into sure. it. A lot of times we do this kind of project of self perfection and holiness, and we think this is what we got to do, but we're actually controlling our life. And when you bring in relationships, that's in community. That's a it's a good thing. Do you People remember what you made me purge uh, one of the last times you had me? Uh... Your Pez dispenser collection. I, I forget what it was. That that's still at home. I I don't have any need for that. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with that. It I, was, I don't, but I have a feeling you do. Oh, yeah. It was my uh, Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile, <laughs> Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile uh, pinata. Right. That hung over my bed since I was in college. Right. And uh, Bobby Beal made that in high school, and I had it, and I liked it. It was unique. And uh, he goes, Why do you have this thing? I said, Because it's cool. And you're like, Get rid of it. Like, <laughs> I like, did what? not say yes, that. Yes, you did. No. Literally. You waited until the very end. I was snooping. You waited until the very end, and then you're like, what are you doing with that pinata? Get right. rid of it. And then I threw it in the trash can, and I was bitter for like, I don't know, like 20 minutes, and then I was like, I'm done with it. So to some, it's the pinatas, those the Italian biking jerseys, it's to each his own, right? But hopefully, we're more detached and more free. That's the point, right? But uh, some of us do a little extra snooping, so... Well, we we'll have see a, about that. We have a great gift here today in the. Uh, you also leave. With us. Hey, hang I, on I, one second. You also return. leave. We make this positive? certain things at my house. You purge certain things to my house because you don't want them. This is actually unbelievable. So no, I mean unbelievably true. It's it, I've never seen an animal with this kind of instinct for nesting and uh, kind of an awareness of where things are. I would intentionally leave crap that I did not want anymore, such yeah. as. A broken external hard drive, which I was moving out after a summer of living at Schloss Goebbels, and I just kicked it under his desk, which mm-hmm. is covered with with stuff. Yes. And below it is covered with stuff. You, can't, you couldn't see this. So within 20 minutes, I hadn't even got to the airport yet, and he goes, hey, I found your external hard drive. And I was like, what? You find everything. So he, know, he actually knows where everything is. Right. It's, it's scary. But I haven't hid anything there lately. I might hide something this week. You had something. You had something the other day. Next time you come to my house, I'm gonna be like, "Did you leave this here?" Somebody gave me a trinket recently, and I'm gonna hide that in a very good Great. place. Yeah, we'll see where that goes. So, well, I'd like to uh, introduce our wonderful friend here, Father Taylor Leffler. Welcome. Do you want to put him on? Have him say hi to everybody. Greetings, listener land. This is uh, what young, joyful, holy priests sound like, right? Unlike these old, old dogs. Can't see my blushing through this microphone. Yeah, so Father Taylor, uh, we met when you were in college seminary. Uh, yeah, yep, that was a long time ago, 2011 or 12. Yeah, um, so right around the time of my ordination, and he is now here visiting us because? Well, so Sean Conroy will become Deacon Sean Conroy soon. When this comes out, he'll be a deacon, yeah. as will some other men from the Archdiocese of Denver. And uh, it's great to come and share that celebration with my brothers. Yep. So, uh, Father Taylor, you can look him up at St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church, where he is well-beloved in the... Is it West? Yeah, West, West Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska. Do you call it West Omaha? I mean, it's, it's kind of, sort of... Yeah, and he hails Omaha. from West Point, Nebraska. That's good memory. This is true. Well, you know what's funny is, you know Jen Mosier? Yes! So I would always introduce her as when we would meet people from nebraska i would say this is jen she's from west point and she's like i'm not from west point i'm from, I'm from clearwater 
Is that a town? Clearwater is a town. So it's Jen smaller than West Point. Jen is so sweet. She's just like, you know, uh, and she would just go along with it. But it, then it became a running joke of um, that Jen was from West Point, and and uh, so it just stuck in my memory. So that's hilarious. But you guys had a good football team a couple of years ago, didn't you? We did. We did indeed. Good old West Point. There you go. Good place. Father uh, Taylor, good to have you with us. Thanks for Thank hanging you. out tonight. This oh, is what he pleasure. does. Uh, unfortunately, our friends come across the country to hang out, and we're like, okay, sit down. We're going to podcast. And uh, But hopefully you can uh, yeah, get some free whiskey out of it. Some free booze. And hopefully... Uh, we'll Dinner and a you, show. Have you, uh, you know, contribute a little bit. How close are you to Papillon? Papillon? Papillon. Papillon. Is it spelled like Papillon? Well, yeah, I know that. The movie, the movie yeah. with uh, John... What's his name? Don't interrupt, John. Um, that's where, that's where the Cabela's is. I'm 15 minutes. That's where the Cabela's is. Yeah. That's a nice Cabela's. Yeah. I had a very nice conversation with a fly guide there. What's your favorite restaurant in that town? What's your favorite meal to have in that town? I've, I've only See, had, I've get... only had one and it was not memorable. Well, you shouldn't have gone to Runza. That was the mistake. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Runza's, Runza is my favorite place in Nebraska. <laughs> Oh my gosh! The cheeseburger, the cheeseburger runza. Father Taylor's face says it all right there. Yeah, it gives you the runza. That's what my dad always joke. It's like these running dad jokes, you know. Whatever. Yeah. So I uh, moving right along. I have a topic tonight that man, am I excited to talk about? I'm excited because it is going to bore the beep out of. He put he put me off because I I had a topic ready and he goes actually it's my turn. Normally he's like he's like you want to do it? Yeah. Do you want to do it? Oh man, I am here. We I've go. Been, I've been jazzed on this all week, right? Jazzed like in. Uh, let's see here. Uh, You're just like that, exactly. That was what was going on interiorly when I was teaching theological anthropology all week. So guess what? It's not Mariology in the 12th century, nice. as you were hoping for tonight. Nice. But it ain't happening. All right, we got a refill. We did. Ready to go. Ready to go, gentlemen. I want to take you back a long, long ways. A long, long time ago, to the origin of the human race. That's what we're talking about tonight. Monogenism. Monogenesism. Monogenism or monogenesis. Monogenesis. The origin of the human race as coming from one man and one woman. Unman. Right? Unman. What is it? Und Man, Man und Weib. Weib und Man. Rechen antit Gottheit an. <laughs> oh, you have that memorized. Garansky would be so yeah. proud. This is uh, Humani Generis. Right. This okay. is a gr- it's a great topic. Okay, well done. So Humani Generis was an encyclical written by Pius XII. XII. Pius XII. You don't want to challenge me on these points. Oh, right no, now. I just okay. thought, I'd, I, I thought I'd add a few things. <laughs> Pius XII. Ninth. Almost said the eleventh. Yeah, well, he was cool too. He was a great mountaineer, but that's another topic. Eugenio uh, Pacelli. Eugenio Pacelli, nineteen fifty. This comes out now. Humani Generis is not written about evolution. It's written about all of these different kind of Ill issues that are happening in the day philosophically. These things, but there's an important section in Humani Generis, nineteen fifty, where they take up this question of creation and evolution and say. How do these things kind of work together? Sure. Because from the Catholic perspective, of faith and reason being held together, science and theology also hold together and are complementary. Because right. right around this time, they're finding 
you know, evidence of these uh, remains of the Cro-Magnum man or right. whatever it's called. Right. So you have Cro-Magnum in, uh, in Europe. You have Teilhard de Chardin in the 1930s, uh, and they find the third skeleton of Homo erectus, right? We'll talk about this in a second. Um, when did they find Lucy? Um, 60s? I think it was okay. afterwards. Um, so yeah, the fossil record and then what we would call biogeography. Uh, so the way species are migrating, mutating, being formed. Sure. These are the things that are informing evolutionary thought, which, as you know, brings with it a whole import of philosophical ideas that are not scientifically provable, but are philosophical presuppositions, right? Dar- Darwinism, neo-Darwinism has these theories that are philosophical and presuppositions, right? And it's not just that, Okay. So the question then becomes, what do you do with that? Well, the big thing that happens in 1953 is the discovery of... Gold. DNA. Close. Uh, right? Crick. So, so all of the, the whole conversation around evolution shifts with modern genetic theory. Sure. All right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, we have this ability to trace lineages uh, yeah. and to understand what is distinctive of a human being and what does that look like different, right? Wow. And one of the things we found in modern genetic uh, studies, especially recently, is that there was intermingling, interbreeding, a little bit frisky between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, modern day, anatomically modern human beings. Who says that? So the title of this podcast is Global, 4% Neanderthal, which is high, but I'm going to go with that, right? Sure, yeah. Everybody except for Julius, who lives in this house, uh uh-oh. Hello, everyone. It is. Hey, we're still going, baby. The whole time? We're going. Now. Hopefully it wasn't the whole time. Yeah, baby, we're going. Okay. Okay, so you were talking about... Where were we? Where were we, folks? DNA. DNA. We just got... Uh, you said you wanted to call it Gobel Homo Erectus 4%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pass on comments on that one. No, uh, Neanderthal. You got Neanderthal blood. Everybody in this in this house right now, except for Julius Luli, has Neanderthal blood what? because he is from Africa. So oh what's yeah, that, what's that mean? And my guys from Myanmar don't have Neanderthal blood because they have what's called uh, Denis Denisovan. Is that right? What Denisovian? You just made that up. I made that up. Denisovian. They, listen, this is unbelievable. Five years ago, in a cave. In the south of Siberia, they find a pinky finger. Okay. Oh. The date ba- dates back to like sixty thousand BC. What? They extract the DNA from it, and they realize there's this whole race of non-humans. Hu- we're going to call humanids. Okay. Humanids being the Neanderthals, Denisovians, or whatever Denisovians. They are um, like human beings, and they lived with us. For a period of time, but they did not, uh, and there was intermingling, and at, and, it, and things got frisky. And one of the reasons that we now think that Tibetans, for example, can live hypoxic at such a high level mm-hmm. is because of this really non-human humanid DNA that they we, we now know genetically is in them. Huh? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So Julius is the only one without Neanderthal blood. So why do Africans? Because he's from Uganda. Why don't they have it? 
Well, Goble, that takes us back about 2 million years prior to that. Are we getting into Mitochondrian Eve again? No, we're not doing Mitochondrian Eve. I read an article recently. Uh, there's some question marks around Mitochondrian Eve. We're not going to talk about it. Well, her, you her know, tonight, I mean, that's embarrassing. But so one point eight million years ago, you have Homo erectus. So all of a sudden, we go from feet and hands. This is going to freak some people out, okay? Because if you're if you're a if you're a slave to literalism with Genesis chapter one, sure, which is what Ratzinger calls it, he says it it frees us from the slavery of literalism. Uh-huh. If you think that the world is only five thousand years old, you're not going to like this podcast, okay? Because what I'm presuming is that when when we read in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, I'm talking thirteen point six billion years, billion billion years. He creates the earth four point six billion years. Right? At later? Uh, 11, 11 billion years later, and you have the Earth. Think about this for a second, wow. guys. Think about the size of the galaxy. The Earth, you could, the, the sun is a million times bigger than the Earth. One million. You could one fit a million Earths. million. One million dollars. It's 1967. What is that? Okay. There are two billion stars like the sun in our galaxy. Uh-huh. Right? When you look wow. out at Schloss Goebbels and you get a nice view, you look at the Milky Way, you're looking at a couple billion stars. There are then a trillion, trillion galaxies. There are more, if you, this is Thomas Dubay's a wonderful book called The Evidential Power of Beauty. We talked about ma- macro marvels years ago. Macro marvels. But he says, if you pick up, uh, my family's all down in Florida right now, they're on the beach. If, if they pick up a handful of sand, there would be estimated 40,000 grains of sand in their hand. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand in every beach in, in the world. Hmm. That's crazy. So this was a long time coming. 13 yeah. billion years, 4.6 billion years or whatever, we have the creation of the Earth. And then at around 1.8 million years ago, Homo erectus comes out of Africa. Okay? And what happens is there's different strains that come off of this. This is not human beings yet, but they're walking. And what are they doing? They're following tribes, and they're kind of, you know, whatever, working together. They're, they're, I mean, animals and these things. Uh, so the Neanderthals are up in, in um, Europe. The Denisovians or whatever are in Asia. Uh-huh. And these other kind of non-human, humanoids are existing, okay? Then around somewhere between 200 and 150,000 B.C., you have... What seems to be in the south of Africa, the development of what we will call anatomically modern humans. Okay, they used to be called Cro-Magnum or these different words, but these are human beings that we would say are human beings. Well, okay. So stick with me here for a second. Okay. Anatomically human, okay. modern humans is the scientific term that comes into being two hundred thousand to one hundred fifty thousand. BC, okay? Okay. Around 100,000 BC, you have... Well, you give me that look. Why don't I just read out of the book that I'm trying to I, I think it's impressive that you remember all these things. Well, I've been teaching my guys this. Here we go. 100,000 BC. Okay, here we go. So this is a, f- a wonderful book called Thomistic Evolution, and the main author is a guy named Nicanor Pier Giorgio Austriaco. Okay, he's a Dominican, so... The critically important distinction between anatomically modern humans, bipeds, who looked like us, and behavioral model humans, okay? So he makes a distinction between 
anatomically modern humans and behaviorally modern humans, bipeds that not only look like us, but behaved like us as well. Anatomically modern humans evolved around 200,000 to 150,000 years ago. Behaviorally modern humans did not appear until much later. Okay. So what he's talking about is there is, a ch- is something that happens. Ah, here's the thing I'm looking for. Okay. Here it is. Creatures who looked like us evolved in Africa between 200,000 and 150,000 years ago, and then they migrated out of Africa about 60,000 years ago. Okay. So um, about 60,000 years ago, you have this out of Africa event that happens where anatomically modern humans are doing things that are different. They call it the great leap forward. Something happens prior to this out of Africa where then they're later going to go and breed with Neanderthals and here you get Nathan Goebel, right? 4% sure. 4% Neanderthal. Something happens that's different. And that is just one of these scientifically unexplainable things. You have the movement from mere kind of existing and again hunting and survival to unbelievable things such as language, art, culture, religion, burial rites, um, all kinds of all, all kinds of conceptual thinking. And what we're going to talk about here is the interpersonal relationship and collaboration becomes something that changes. And of course, from a theological perspective, we're like, yeah, that's called the immediate creation of the rational soul. Yeah. In the Bloombos Cave in modern South Africa, which we date back to 75,000 BC, you have the oldest cave paintings in the world, which were done... I thought that was in France. That is old too, but that's like 50. The caves in the south of France. They found older ones than that? Yeah, 75,000 is the oldest. I've done nothing all week except thought about this. Okay, so you got to trust me on these details. Trust me. And Dr. Tom McLaughlin has been sitting in on classes, and we've been nerding out together all week. Nerding out. He's amazing. After class, they are like giggling over Baron and Luthien, and then getting into some evolutionary. What do you think the Cro-Magnum would look like? Sophocles, I told you. Whatever. (laughs) Okay. So, so they find these paintings. So they find these paintings, seventy-five thousand, and they realize there's something that's unbelievably different here. Okay. So, what I want to do is I want to pause here for a second and just unpack this a little bit. And, and try and draw out some of the implications. What I'm looking at here, if you're interested in this topic, um, I, I'm, I love this article by a philosopher named Kenneth Kemp, uh, who wrote this in 2011, so about 10 years ago. It's called Science, Theology, and Monogenesis. And he basically says, the church teaches monogenesis. The uh, scientific world and evolutionary theory seems to be pointing towards polygenesis, that the that this out-of-Africa thing did not happen with one man and one woman, that there was many. So how do you acknowledge that? Wow. And then how do you reconcile it? That's Kenneth Kemp's project. And then Ostriaka, who wrote this two years ago, is developing that, and he's got a couple more interesting things to say. But I think these two are very complementary, and I think that it's very important. So here's the the bottom line. Darwinian evolution and mutation... There, prior to 1950, when uh, Pius XII is writing this thing, the question is, is he condemning polygenism, or is, he, or is there some kind of possible flexibility here, right? 
Now, if you go to a certain Catholic high school in Denver, which shall not be named, that uh, one of my seminarians went to, what you're told is, well, Adam and Eve are not actually individuals. They stand for humanity, right? So the polygenesis that we would actually call polyphyletism, which means like multi-stems. So imagine it's 100 years ago and you're working out of a Darwinian theory, but this is prior to genetics. What you're thinking is that um, the human, Homo erectus is everywhere, and then Homo erectus becomes Homo sapien in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, and all these different places, right? So the idea of polygenesis is impossible, or monogenesis is impossible. So there's this reworking of the Genesis account that the Catholic theologians are saying, and Pius Twelfth is directly condemning that, right? But some good theologians, including Louis Ladaria, who runs the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, said in his Theological Anthropology, which is unfortunately not in English, Pius XII is not condemning polygenism specifically, but he's saying it seems irreconcilable to the doctrine of original sin. And this is important. Right. As Catholics, what we're looking at with evolution is the question, not so much of literally interpreting Genesis, which is important, but that's a whole other topic. What we're interested in is how do you bring evolutionary findings into this compatible way with the doctrine of original sin, which says that original sin is not just an event that happened, but also a state that was transmitted by propagation and not by imitation, mm-hmm. which means it's got to go back to mm-hmm. one right. man, one woman. Yep. The we human race... Be- we have to believe in that. The human race is affected by an event that created a state, right? Peccatum originale... Uh, what do they call it? Originans, the state, and originatum, the um, the event itself that happened. So at some point, maybe around 80,000 BC, you have two ensouled rational human beings that fall, and that is the beginning of the human race. But the question is, how do you reconcile that with evolutionary theory that's saying... There's no way that genetically we could have this all back to one man and one woman. That's the question. Kemp takes up and Ostriaco. Now, I hope you're still interested in this because I find this to be thrilling and amazing. Do you have any questions, though? I mean, uh, why is it that you? Why is it that you can't have uh, one set of parents and then also? all these other like different derivatives of it. Exactly. So that's, the that's key, what you're asking. That's the key distinction. Can I just tell you what I think happened? Yeah, go ahead. You have in Genesis account where they say that they, they mate with giants. Okay. And it says, it says they, they started to the sons. What is it? The sons of God uh, started to take up the daughters of men. Right. And they were specifically told not to do that. They're supposed to stay within their own race. And then they start, you know, taking up, you know, relations with these others, and interesting things happen. Right. So um, that is a question of interbreeding, which I think is important, but that would yeah. be after the fall. What we're trying to figure out is... Oh, before what the about fall? Before the, what about before the fall, but where did Adam and Eve come from? And that, this is what I think is interesting, is that they... Well, God, but, can, God can take the matter of, of these non-insoles. yep. Yeah, he can Good. take he can take the matter of that and then choose who he wants. Okay, and he can even take one of each. 
Yep. He could have biracial, whatever, Bi- interracial, interracial children, you know? Go for it. You got to pass him in the microphone. There we please. go. Well, there's this book called Do Adam and Eve Have Belly Buttons? Yes. And I don't have much more to say, but I there know you that's go. a valid question. Right. So I would think that materially they do. Here, here's the theory that I'm gonna I'm gonna throw at you guys. Materially, it all they goes do, it Taylor. all goes back to it goes back to that distinction between the anatomically modern human and behaviorally modern human. Another way of describing that, the way that Kemp describes it, is the biological species and the theological species. Okay, so okay. choose the language you like, choose your own adventure, global, and think of it like this. And I'm going to read this for you, just directly. Both of these guys, they have a little bit different accounts. But here's what they say. Suppose that you have a population of 5,000 hominids. So these are non-human, but Mm human-like. Their bodies are almost the exact, the matter is almost the exact same. But we're not talking about a rational soul. So these are not human beings, as we would call them. Imagine you have 5,000 hominids. Beings which are in many respects like human beings, but which lack the capacity for intellectual thought. Out of this population, God selects two and endows them with intellects by creating for them rational souls, giving them at the same time those preternatural gifts, the possession of which constitute original justice. Remember that grace is in the garden, the original formation of man and woman. Only beings with rational souls are truly human. These first true human beings also have descendants, which constitute or which continue to some extent to interbreed with the non-intellectual hominids among whom they live. So after the fall, you have all of a sudden that kind of crazy ape woman at the bar is looking pretty good after three bourbons, sure. right? All of a sudden, it's like, okay, here we go. If God endows each individual yeah. that has a single human ancestor with an intellect of its own, interbreeding, a reasonable rate of reproductive success and a reasonable selective advantage would easily replace the non-intellectual hominid population of 5,000 individuals with a, with a theologically human population within, within three the... centuries. Wow. Throughout the process, all theologically human beings would be descended from a single original human couple without there ever having been a population bottleneck in the human species. He talks about that. The point of this is to say that the theory is monogenetic with respect to theological, theologically human beings, but polygenic with respect to the biological species. Okay, can Woo! interesting, very intriguing. What I what I'm wondering is, how do you reconcile that with with Genesis saying that out of Adam comes Eve? Right. What is that? You're saying that all of a sudden God just chooses two random people, and He's like, "Well, here you go." Like, uh, congratulations, you win the prize. I've chosen you two uh, to become the um, to become the proponents of the human race. Right. So I'm kind of focusing on Genesis one today. Thanks, folks, and that's Genesis two. Okay, so you're doing that'd, the be, a, fr- that'd be a great another topic. But I, I I think the question of yeah. how does this happen is is interesting. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah, I hear you. And I'm not saying that God doesn't create the woman out of man. The, the, what is the literal intention of that? What does that actually mean is, is part of the question. 
And what's interesting to think about is going back to so Ostriaka. Yeah. Okay, so you're doing Genesis one. All right, right. no, we're gonna do a little Genesis two here, but I I don't know if I I agree with you. I understand. It's too much. I'm running out of time. You're trying to do too much. You you've already bitten off a lot. You know, we're talking about hominids and theological man versus behavioral man. I mean, this is a lot. People are getting a lot driving to work today. You're getting a lot on your uh, Thursday morning drive to work. The main point is to say that at some point. A theological man ended up sleeping with a behavioral woman. Right. So you can. Or vice versa. Could you say vice versa? Vice versa. Could you say that, you know, a a theological woman, you know, you know, settled for a behavioral man? I mean, many of you have already, you already think that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What's happening right now, Taylor? Not like Spencer. I mean, we can't all have just, you know. Oh, he whoa. actually listens, doesn't whoa, whoa. he? He's a, he's a theological man. He's a theological that's what I'm saying. man. Oh, oh, oh! oh. What does that even mean? Oh, yeah, that's why that was that she's was. A wound care she's a wound care nurse. She is a theological she's one, woman. She's got one more wound to care now, thanks to you. Boom, boom. Here's what I love about Ostriaco's oh theory: is that he says something similar to Kemp, and I'll just I'll just try and wrap this thing up here because I can see Goebel's eyes rolling in the back of his head. So, well, I'm just, I mean, uh, I'm having trouble. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. I, this is all I've done this week. Think about everything you've done, all of the souls you've saved, all of the no, sins saying, you've forgiven. All I've done is read about this all week. I'm normally just at the mindset of we must believe in a monogenetic uh, beginning to mankind. Because of the effects of original sin, that's what I've taken. Which from, is what we we hold to, right? So when you introduce all these things, I'm like, okay, like I don't know how it's going to work out, but eventually you're going to come up with two parents. That's right. it, right? You sound like Father Jason Wallace, who said because all the guys have been talking about this all week, yeah. And at dinner at Lord's, they were just blah, 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 you know. And he goes, "Man, why don't we just wait 35 years and I'll ask God directly." Well, no. End I'm, of conversation. But that's not that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that based on humani generis, what is what he comes to the conclusion of really three things that you have to have the immediate creation of the soul by God. You have to have the creation. You have to have the monogenesis as the beginning of the human race, and you have to say that original sin is passed on through propagation, not by imitation. Right. Those are the three. Right. But I, I just think we can say, we can hold all of those and then say, you have somewhere between 5,000 to 10,000 hominids walking around in the north of Africa at the moment when God instills and gives the rational soul. And what I was trying to describe to my guys was, it wasn't just like they're eating dirt and then all of a sudden it's like, ah. and then they start eating you know almonds or something like that. It, it, this is not just like a subtle thing. The theologically, um, and Trevor Lantin had a great line with this. He's like, it makes sense why God revealed creation because this is so crazy and messy and complicated. Dr. McLaughlin was talking about this also. The word bara, create, is used three times in Genesis chapter one. The creation of nothing, of something out of nothing, the creation of life out of non-life, and the creation of man, the image of God. Hmm. So the moment whatever it was, 80,000 BC, before they go out of Africa and then the fall happens and then they get frisky with the Neanderthals and all this stuff happens, the moment when that happens is 
on par with the creation of the universe. I mean, what we're talking about here is something yes. that's magnificent and unbelievable. And, yes. I, and what I love that Ostriaka points to is he says he believes that this is the, what makes them human and what, what distinguishes this great leap forward is language. That this is the first moment when you have language happening. And my guys, we're talking about this and we're saying, what if St. Irenaeus is right and Adam and Eve were children? What if they were conceived with rational souls, right? So at the moment of conception, this is all theory, given rational souls, when Adam grows up and then all of a sudden can talk to another, now he's saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is something unbelievable. We actually have the capacity for, for inter, interpersonal relationship, for communion, for intimacy. And, we, and what's crazy is that we know this scientifically. They start doing art together, right? They create culture together. They're, what's possible is the, all of the, the pre-human way of relating, which is fundamentally exploitative, right, uh, is now this shared intentionality of collaboration. And human beings are working together because they have the capacity for conceptual thinking, which is what is necessary and prerequisite for language. So all, I just think that Adam looking at Eve for the first time as the first being to ever be able to express himself in language, which means in word and in love, and sees her and finds himself in her. Mm -hmm. This is what Leon Cass is talking about, right? That they find each other in the relationship because finally... Trinitarian relationality is possible in creation. And the presence of God, the presence of the divine is possible in the soul. Matter has worked its way. For 13 billion years, we've been moving to this point, and it happens. It's unbelievable. But before Ostriaco says it, Walker Percy talks about it in Lost in the Cosmos. He talks about how language def uh, separates us from all these other species because we actually are able to think conceptually about these things and be able to express it using some kind of uh, this means that. Right. Like an, an analogous language. Right. So if and you say, want, you should have your guys read Little Lost in the Cosmos. I know. We, we did read that um, in Fundamental Theology, but Noam Chomsky also says the same thing, the great linguist, right? He says that basically the human capacity for language is best explained if it first appeared in one individual the first behaviorally modern human who himself was one member of the larger population of anatomically modern humans. Human languages seem to have derived from a single proto-language that dates back somewhere between 80,000 to 100,000 BC. Linguistically, this is, science is, is pressing to these points, and it's profoundly compatible and beautiful with Genesis. And Genesis it's, 1. I, Genesis 1, and Genesis, gen, 1. And Genesis 2. But they're, 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 they're reflecting on this event in different ways. And what I love about Genesis 2 is the intrinsic relationality because Ratzinger has these wonderful homilies he gave on creation, if you want to read more on this. And one of the things he stresses is that to be in the image of God is to be intrinsically relational. Right? That's what models the Trinity. We don't think like that as modern people. We think relationships are secondary. We're kind of autonomous individuals, kind of you know, in, in pursuit of sweet, sweet pow, living our best life. And it's like, no, no, no. What makes us image God is our intrinsic relationality. And that's not possible 
before the create the immediate creation of the rational soul, which happened to two hominids in the north of Africa, some point around 80,000 BC, where they left North Africa, went everywhere, got frisky with the Neanderthals, and here you are with Father Nathan Global. They don't stay together, the two of them? The Neanderthals? No. No, the- they're done by 40,000 BC. What? Yeah, they're, they, they go extinct. Who does? Neanderthals. Right, but you said the, the two rational, the rational humans go and then they get frisky with Neanderthals. The two of them... No, not the two, not the two, later. Not the two, later. Think about Genesis chapter 4, boys. What do, you, what do you do when it's like, oh, there's other humans walking around? That's right. What do you do with that? Well, I'm, that's what I've said. The Nephilim, like you're talking about. The, you know, the these, Nephilim. The Nephilim. The, the Spencers <laughs> of the world. What, what is this about Spencer? So He's a big man. He's a, he's a large man. He's a large man. And actually, man. you have giant, you have, we have Imagine skeletal structures. Imagine driving of, tanks in the middle of like World War II. We have skeletal structures of giants and hobbits. And, you know, C.J. Mast, it was very unfair, some of the comments that were made about his, you know, this is a very short deacon. So, yeah. Dangerous territory. So right now, uh, I have a deacon at my parish, Deacon Hugh Downey. He is the smallest deacon in in the Archdiocese of Denver until C.J. Mast became he was a deacon. <laughs> yeah, a deacon. And so now, like, it's pretty funny. Anyway, I, I think this is fascinating. I think you've done a lot of good research on it. Um, I old, knew it'd be a tall order tonight for it's a, a podcast. Tall order. It's a tall I, order. I knew Humani Generis, right? I knew uh, the author was pious. I didn't know which one, but I knew it was pious. He was a pious man. I knew the three principles that we have to hold by uh, if we're going to talk about evolution and not just say, oh, yeah, we, we evolved into Homo sapiens. It's like, well, not really. Um, right. So, I mean, I think I stuck together pretty good. I think you did a great job. And the most important thing is you made it through the podcast. We made it through the podcast. We had a lot of, we had a difficult time. We had to get through a password issue. You just called I mean, it the podcast. All the these first. things. We're so glad to be with you, folks. We're so glad that we're theological creatures and uh, not behavioral humans. Well, let's go to shout outs then. I mean, because we're intrinsically relational, right? That's right. We're I not mean, just I, anatomically. I think it's good. I, I would just wonder, like, what's your, was the whole buildup for this just so you could say that we are intrinsically relational? Because I think that isn't a good, a good point, or the language thing. My, the, 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 the thing that you found most fascinating. The thing I found most fascinating was the thought of man awakening to the experience of woman in language and in interpersonal relationship in the first time ever in creation, mm-hmm. because they image God, sure. because they carry within them the life of God. And that, that self-discovery in the discovery of the other is something that is... Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I just, that was... That is something to ponder, certainly. I yeah. thought it was beautiful because we were we were talking about this earlier this week, and uh, what is the first thing that we do in baptism is we actually sign them with a, a seal of relationality. Right. You are sealed with the sign of the cross, but you are sealed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we do for any person coming into the church is we actually say, you're made for a relationship. Who are you? All right. What is the name you've given your child? Right. You know? And then you actually say, like, we want to bring you into the family of God who is relation. Right. Um, so that's great. 
It's a good topic. Honestly, you had a lot more prepared than I did. Well, so, I uh, blame it on the day job. Little Iron Chef going on. A and, little uh, Iron Today chef. we were doing a little bit of Neanderthal lovemaking <laughs> in a 17, uh, 75 century BC cave. Why don't you pass that microphone over to Father Taylor and let him Father Taylor's gonna offer have a, a shout out. A few shout outs to the uh, community of Papillion. Papillon. Papillon. It's Papillon. a butterfly community. Uh, shout out to Sister Mary Carolyn of the Sisters of St. Francis of the Martyr St. George. Yes. 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 You both know her. She's lovely. I like to call them the Dragon Slayers. She's Dragon Slayers. She's a directress, and their order is amazing. If you love merciful love, you might like their community. Shout out to Mr. Spencer Leffler. Yes. Brother in the flesh. We love you, Spencer, it. even though Goble <laughs> basically confused your family and marriage with and his beloved wound care nurse wife Lauren Leffler and finally to the Reverend Mr. Travis Michael Crotty from the Diocese of Sioux City, Iowa oh does he listen? Remember him? Yeah. he does listen to him and his classmates who will be priests this summer I'm preaching at Deacon Travis's first mass this summer will be Father Travis and I can't you know whoever Whoever it is in Sioux City, we got some listeners, some awesome listeners in Sioux City, because I got a text from Shane Demon. Now, we recorded yesterday. It came out this morning, and at 7 a.m., I got a text from Shane, because I was talking about how he dished all his Euro pennies on me, and he's like, there's a, there's a solid following in Sioux City, Iowa. So I'd like to shout out to those listeners from Northwestern Iowa. Thank you there for you listening. Go. Dr. Tom McLaughlin, you rock, you were he just amazing. You were amazing this week. This guy was my professor, our professor in seminary, yeah. and he has the humility to sit in my class and 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 just want to be there. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I literally, and he just loved it, and he came all week to uh, to my class, to my theological anthropology class, on top of his full schedule. So I'm going to tell him to listen to this podcast just so we can hear He's that. He's the one who taught me about humani generis. Yeah, that's true. Philosophy He's amazing. And science. But this is these are the there are people who give their life to the formation of priests who never get appreciated, are never in the limelight, and Tom McLaughlin is one of them, and he has formed right. He's formed many, many priests uh, in western Western United States, and uh, he's just. He's the model of a great intellect and a, and a humble man. So, shout out to him. Just a reminder: Sioux City sucks. Oh, this is your. No, I thought you were making fun of Dubuque. No, do you get that? Sioux City sucks. No, uh, that's their. Yeah, that's yeah. their. That's their call sign for the airport. They actually made a sort of following around that. So, nice. anyways, um, <laughs> sorry. This is my niece, Mean Mug, and everybody's at. Disney World right now. The whole family and Lucy. Shout out to everybody in Syracuse who knows my brother. This is his youngest daughter. Talk about Honey Beauty. Badger. Look at that photo. What she just, it? everybody's smiling and she just straight <laughs> mean mugged it. All right, that's it for me. Alright, so uh, shout out to Kaylee from uh, Springfield, Missouri. These are people from uh, the uh, anniversary podcast. And to uh, Catherine from Northern Kentucky. Go Vikings. Uh, I think I met her at Seek. Uh, to the Shaney Felts. Uh, that's that's true. Uh, that's who they were. I went into a gas station before I left for Seek and uh, walked into the gas station to get a uh, coffee. And uh, these people are there, like, looking at sunglasses, and I don't pay any attention to them. And then all of a sudden they're like, Father Nathan? I'm like, what? Because I had asked the lady a question, and they recognized my voice from the podcast, and they are a mess that day. So, anyways... 
Shaney Felds. They were out skiing. Shaney Felds. Uh, and then to Andrew Whaley. Because uh, Andrew Whaley. He is a uh, he is something of a uh, theological uh, vortex. Uh, theological human. He is. So, anyways. Unlike Spencer Leffler. <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Uh, this is Catholic stuff. Hey, we podcast. got through it. Hey, I want to thank you. I I told I Mike. I told Mike yesterday. I was like, Goble's gonna absolutely. He's gonna be just sweating and shifting yeah, through shifting. this whole thing. Yeah. And you were very attentive, and I appreciate it. I know. I had. Consumed, I know you wanted to hear about Mariology tonight. I had but. consumed a baseball sirloin, uh, which is true. I don't. I've never had one of those before. I had a baseball sirloin in two Manhattan's before I got here. So. Frankly, I didn't give a rip about what you were talking about. I was just long for the ride. This is Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, Stitcher, uh, various quilting websites. Um, uh, we enjoy your feedback. Uh, please uh, send your uh, various letters to uh, 1050 Pennsylvania. Uh, we are located in the United States of America, Earth, created 800 billion years ago. This is Father Nathan Goble, theological 4% Neanderthal, signing up.